two wonders I confess, the wonder of redeeming love and my unworthiness. And these are the things that ought to stand reminder every time we see the cross. His love is amazing. His wonder is there. And so we come to Paul's admonition. He gives us what the Lord did and how that he gave thanks, break the bread. They ate of the bread and they drank of the cup. I wonder if you join me in a prayer of thanksgiving for the broken body and the shed blood at this time. <clears throat> Father, we come to your table acknowledging our sinfulness, looking back to remember that you died in our place, looking back to remember that you rose from the grave. Father, looking in right now to our own hearts and asking, is everything right between you and us? And Father, with hope, looking forward to the day that you come again and you will drink the cup new in your kingdom. And Father, we believe that that day will come and you will rule King of kings and Lord of lords. Father, now we thank you for the sacrifice of your son. We come asking to minister to our hearts now the reminder and the grace that we need to serve you. And it's in the precious name of Jesus we ask these things. Amen. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. <clears throat> in the same way, he also took the cup. After supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament or New Covenant in my blood. Do this as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as oft as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. And God's people said, Amen. We're going to collect the cups from you there and have another song as we do collect the cups, all right?
seated there if you would. Colossians chapter 2 verse 16 through 19 this morning. Colossians 2 16 through 19. And we'll read these verses together and then we'll ask the Lord to give blessing to our thoughts this morning as we try to unpack them. Verse number 16, therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in details about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Let's pray together. Father, once more we stop and we ask you for your guidance. Lord, I know that without your help, we cannot communicate the truth of your word. Father, I pray this morning that you would do a work in our hearts or draw us to an enlightenment from the text of Scripture today. Lord, I pray, Father, that everything would be received uh, in a way that would bring honor and glory to you and edification to your body. In the precious name of Jesus, we ask it. Amen. We've come off of a lot of heavy doctrine in Colossians 3, and in the next week we'll finish up Colossians 2. The next week we'll finish up Colossians 2 and begin to walking in to Colossians 3. And Colossians 3 is going to be a lot more practical. And so he's going to start telling us why we need or what we need to do. Uh, we start walking out the what's of Scripture, and he talks about uh, laying aside certain things and putting on certain things and, and uh, how we are to behave in our relationships. And all of these things are, are practical applications of the doctrine. And Paul often starts his epistles with heavy doctrine and then gives us the what that follows. And so doctrine is the why and then the practical application or the what that follows that. 
And, and don't ever let anybody confuse us to somehow or another. And I, 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 I think this gets thrown at pastors some because we do lean into the idea of teaching and doctrine. But, well, pastor, you know, I'm not into all this doctrine stuff. That's making a distinction that you can't make and have a why, uh, a what. If the doctrine is the why we do what we do, then the what is driven by it. And if you have a what that is right, but no doctrine that drives it, the what will change eventually. There has to be a reason why we do what we do. The reason why we can put off is that we're complete in Christ. The reason why we can put on is that we've been made whole in Christ. And so the whole of one and two drives the what that we're going to do in three and four. And that is so important that you have that in its right place. And, and don't let somebody sell you the bill of goods is somehow or another the doctrine is the boring stuff and now let's go preach Jesus. Because here's the thing, if you don't know who Jesus is, you can't preach Jesus. And we must know who he is. We must be rooted in the scripture to know who he is. This morning I'll title the message, Shadows and Substances. Shadows and Substance, rather. He opens verse number 16 with this statement, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. Let no one pass judgment on you. And, and that's probably everybody's favorite verse in the Bible, uh, Thou shalt not judge. Everybody loves that verse. Don't judge anybody. Let me, let me make something extremely clear. To call sin, sin is not passing judgment. We have to call sin, sin. Right is right and wrong is wrong. It's not legalistic to say adultery is a sin. The Bible says that. I'm declaring what God has said about something. And when we declare what the scripture says about something, we're not, being, uh, we're not passing judgment in that regard. That's not what he's even referring to here in the passing of judgment, nor is it what Jesus is referring to when he talks about passing judgment. He's talking about considering your own sin before you start meddling in other people's sin. That's always good advice, by the way. It's very good wisdom that we not walk around with a beam sticking out of our eye trying to get the speck out of somebody else's eye. Um, and, but it doesn't mean that we're never to call our brothers and sisters in Christ to account. We have to hold one to another account. And by the way, relationships are what make that possible. Um, so when we come to this, in light of the person and work of Christ, only he is our completeness. Only he is enough. And so don't let anyone come along and say, because you don't do these things, you're not complete or you're not enough. He says that if you do this, that you're being robbed of the fullness that is in Christ. Satan is a good distractor. He's a good confuser. Uh, Satan is not trying to teach us anything. He's just trying to keep us distracted so we don't learn anything. Um, he, he is, he's just trying to stir up the confusion around and, and keep us from focusing in on what Christ has given us in his sacrifice. When he gave us Christ, he gave us everything that we need. We don't need more than Christ. Christ is all I need. And we, we rest in that. And so these things are brought to light that these people are bringing to light. They, they're clearly robbing them of their understanding and their realization of the fullness that they possess in Christ. He said the word judge here is to take you to task, to communicate that you are incomplete without these things. You know, it, it, it'd be a statement like this. Um, if you're a really good Christian, then you will always. If you're, if you're going to be a faithful Christian, then you must 
And, and we put these terms in there, and what are they judging them on? Well, he's going to say they're judging them on meat and drink and respective days. Now, we'll look at that in just a second. But Paul is not saying that you can't observe certain days and you can't abstain from certain food or drink. He's just saying, don't let people set in judgment over you because you do or you don't. I've met with people before uh, that were adamantly opposed to Christians celebrating Christmas. And I was kind of dumbfounded by it when I came across it. I'm like, really? It's like Christmas. I mean, why wouldn't you like Christmas? And, you know, and the argument went, well, there's a lot of pagan influences on Christmas, and, and the history of it is kind of tainted by that. And, and you go down a whole long line, and I'm like, yeah, but there's a lot of pagan influences on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday, too. It all has a lot of Greek influence, and everything has some kind of influence, and I just like Christmas. And so I'm going to celebrate Christmas with the glory of God, and, and I... I, I the kids aren't in here, right? I know Santa Claus isn't real, okay? I know that. Um, but, but I can enjoy Christmas and enjoy the fact that Christ was born and that God became flesh and dwelt among us. And we're resting in that. And, and, and here's the thing what he's saying. He's not saying that you in your own walk couldn't say, you know what? I don't want to observe Christmas because I don't like the fact that it has pagan influences. And so we're going to abstain. He's saying feel free to abstain, but don't let somebody sit in judgment to you for abstaining or for partaking. Don't, don't make this the thing. Because your completeness as a Christian is not whether you observe it or don't observe it. And this is what he's driving at. And he uses other illustrations. There was um, <clears throat> the picture of what a, a legalist looks like. If I could paint a, a picture for you. It would be kind of a heavyset fellow with a polyester suit, wingtip shoes, and a large King James Bible. And a really fat knot on his tie looking down everybody. And that's how we kind of picture it. Somebody just really gruff all the time, telling everybody that they're doing wrong. But the reality is that is not necessarily a legalist. Because the reality is what happens is, uh, I read an article several years ago, it's called The Tattooed Pharisee. You can Google it. It's an interesting little article, because basically what they say is, I don't want to be like that guy. And don't you know that Christians have liberty to do certain things that you're not allowing and you're putting us under bondage. And if you were really a good Christian, then you'd be okay with tattoos. If you were really a good Christian, you'd be okay with jeans with a tear in the knee. Do you see what's happened? All they've done is flip the requirements for what a good Christian is. One is claiming this is what a good Christian looks like. The other is claiming, no, this is what a good Christian looks like. And both have ended up in legalism because we haven't started with Christ. We've started with our own opinion or we've run from something. And so you end up with what, we, what was called in the article a tattooed Pharisee. So what does he tell them? Don't let people sit in judgment with you about food or drink. And, and Paul is very clear that food is not what condemns or commends you to God. In 1 Corinthians 8 and 8, he tells us it's whether you eat something or you don't eat it, that's not what commends you to God. That is not where the, the, the kingdom of God is not based on whether you eat or drink or don't eat or drink. This is not where we find it. As a matter of fact, the Lord, he says in Mark 7, 18 through 20, he said, look, it is not what goes into a man's mouth that defiles him, but what comes out of the man that defiles him. 
And so it's not these things that make us defiled. Uh, Acts in 10, 13 through 16. Peter is there on uh, the rooftop and the vision of the sheet is lowered in front of him. And he looks at the sheet and God says to him, rise, kill and eat. And he said, no, Lord, I can't do this. It's unclean. And these unclean animals were in front of him. And three times the sheet is lowered. Three times he's given the command. And God was telling him, what I have called clean, don't you call unclean. And so the point being is that the ceremonial law has been fulfilled in Christ. And Christ is saying now, because of this has been fulfilled, don't let someone sit in judgment and say, if you really want to be complete, if you want premier access to God, then you have to live by this certain diet or that certain diet. You have to observe this day or that day and the Sabbath day is the one that stands out in the text here. Again, the Sabbath day or the feast. All of these things came in for a purpose and had religious implications to them. But we understand that Christ is our Sabbath. That he is the one we rest in according to Hebrews 4 and 9. That he's the one that's given us rest. And so we rest in him as being our Sabbath. And, and so we can, we can miss the point of all of these things. I, 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 you know, and we do this with any number of things. We can become legalists with all kinds of things. If you know, we get anybody who uh, develops a new discipline of some sort, you, know, you want to stay away from them. If they, you know, somebody starts karate or any martial arts, they're going to tell you about it and tell you how you're not really what you should be until you get into this. You'll never know what it's like to be a real human being until. And I remember in, in college, I had a, a group of guys that were selling metal or element-infused water. They were in this pyramid scheme thing, and they wanted me to come in and sell this water with them. And I don't know if the water worked or not, but it was $99 a bottle, and I wasn't about to buy it, you know? It was ridiculous. They're like, you know, you can't have the concentration levels God intended you to have until you drink 40 ounces of this gold-infused water. And I'm like, there's no way. I'm not going to do it. And, and, but they had this idea that there was a superiority to what they had, and we can set anything up like that, and we do that in Christian circles. Maybe God gives you victory over something. If you're not careful, you can let pride well up in your heart, and you begin to set in judgment. And so not only don't let people set in judgment of you, but make sure that we're not walking in judgment of a brother and sister who doesn't see things the way we see it. See, these are shadows these are shadows of things that were going to come. The Old Testament law was a shadow. And the, the evidence is, the reality of it is Christ is the substance. When you look at the Old Testament law and you see all of the pictures and types in the Old Testament, every one of them were a shadow cast by the Lord Jesus Christ. When you go back to the Old Testament and what do you see? We see the tabernacle of Lone as multiple pictures of Christ. We come to the brazen altar and we see his sacrifice and laying down his life on Calvary. We come to the laver and we see that he washes us completely. And then we come into the, pre into the holy place and we see he's the bread of life on one hand. He's the light of the world on the other hand. He ever lives to intercede for us in front of us. We step to the veil and we see that his body was broken that we might enter into the most holy place where the father is and what pleads for us on the mercy seat the blood of Jesus Christ all of these things were shadows that the cross cast back into the Old Testament for us somebody said and I like this statement I've said it to you many times but the Old Testament is a well-furnished but dimly lit room and when we shine the light of the gospel back into the Old Testament, we see all the beautiful pictures of Christ on display. 
So these were shadows of things to come. We do not need to spend our time with shadows when the substance is present. I mean, can you imagine, you know, your, your spouse goes away for a couple of days or a week, and they come home from that visit, and you have their picture, and you've been looking at their picture all week long, or to put it in more modern vernacular, they come home, and you want to FaceTime them? They're sitting in the living room. Turn the phone off and talk to them. And I think so often when we get wrapped up in these shadows, we're missing the person of Christ instead of the types that were shadowing him before. And these were coming in and saying, if you really want to be enough, you'll do these things. So in verse number 18 and 19, he says, then let no one disqualify you or cause you to miss out. This, this idea here is to beguile of your reward or to take your inheritance. I think on two ways it steals us from our inheritance. The one way it steals us from our inheritance is if we understand that everything we have is in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, that our completeness and our assurance and our ground is here. And what they would say is, no, no, you need these things if you're to be really accepted. And so what we do is we move away from Christ to explore asceticism or the worship of angels or anything else we put between us and Christ, and it robs us of what we've been given in Christ. We're missing the point of it. In Christ, we have everything that was given to us. They steal our inheritance then by deceiving us that we need more than Christ. Now look at verse number 19 and see these words here, okay? Um, and he says, um, I'm sorry, verse number 18 rather. He said, let no one disqualify you. And here's the two words, insisting on. Insisting on. And these are those that are coming along and saying, you must have these things or you never will. You must reach this place or you never will. He's not denying that self-control is necessary or that angels exist or that visions have come. But those, those who teach this have made them the source of our completeness and the test of our Christianity. That these things were the test of who we are. and You have to have these things to find completeness. They're, they're insisting on them. So I want to unpack them. Now, I know we've gone down this road a few weeks now. And we've looked at these things that are deluding us, these plausible arguments. But I, I don't want you to miss these, and I, I don't want these to escape us as we hit them one more time this morning from a slightly different angle. He said, what are they insisting on? They're insisting on asceticism. Asceticism is a word we don't use much at all anymore. But the idea here is self-abasement or the severe treatment of the body in order to obtain spiritual advancement that without which you cannot be complete. So in other words, if you really want to be a good Christian, or you really want to have full enlightenment, then you're going to need to go through a time of fasting and prayer. Now, how many of you believe that Christians should have times of fasting and prayer? Right. But it is not through fasting and prayer that I get to Christ, but it is through Christ that I'm informed how to fast and pray. It's just the opposite. And these were saying, well, you have to deny the body if you're going to be complete. And so they would come up with any number of ways to say we must deny the body. Whether it would be with fasting, with food and drink, and we say no to it. Or we deny the body from meats that we eat. That certain meats are off limit and other meats are okay. And we have these times where we put these things as a means to completeness. We, even some would say, you, you can't have marriage God created marriage for his glory and for the good of man, and yet now we would summon say that marriage is somehow or another a hindrance to knowing Christ. No. That is not what Scripture is teaching us. And those who would teach us that we need to be complete by the denying of the body, 
they're missing the point of who Christ is. You see, self-control will never lead you to Christ. It leads you to pride. Now, now think about this for a second. Anything I do of my own determination is simply strengthening my flesh, not weakening it. Because I'm doing it. Self-control, if in and of itself, just self-control, you doubling down and trying harder makes you more full of yourself. And you know, and we talked about that. You see somebody that develops a, a new diet, and now they think everybody needs their diet. And if you don't go into this diet, whatever the fat is, you don't have the self-control you should be, so therefore you're not as good a Christian as I am. Now you say, Pastor, we never said that, but you thought it. We all get those thoughts in our mind that this is the means and the way that we find it. And self-control in and of itself produces pride within us. You see, self-control doesn't lead me to Christ, but Christ, Christ, when I walk in the presence of Christ, he will talk to me about what needs to be controlled in my flesh. And he will give me spirit-filledness to control and to walk those things out. Look in chapter 3, what he says. He says in chapter number three, he says, set your minds, verse number two, on things uh, above and not on the things of the earth. Verse number five, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. Verse number eight, but now you must put, a, put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. What is he doing? See, Christ informs what must be controlled in my life. And, and the thing is, I would much rather somebody give me some external thing to do than to deal with my anger. Because dealing with my anger has me changing something that is fundamental to me because I like my anger. I like my malice. I like my unforgiveness. And these are things I want to hold on to in my flesh. But when I come to Christ, he doesn't just let me put on an externality of Christianity. He goes down to the heart and begins to deal with the heart of it. And goes all the way to where I live. And so this asceticism was coming in and saying, you must do these things. You must deny this. Often people grow up with rigid rules in a church setting that have been placed on us that are not necessarily biblical. They don't come from Christ. They don't start with Christ. They start with men. And we are then tired of those rules or feel oppressed by those rules. And if we're not careful, we will leave the opinion of one man and run away from those rules and say, okay, I'm looking for somebody to agree with me on this. Let me just give you a for instance. When I, when I grew up, uh, the thou shalt not... From early on in, in, in church history, from back in the early 1900s, thou shalt not go to the movies. Anybody ever taught that when you were a kid? All right, a few of you. I'm not the only weird one here. Okay. Uh, thou shalt not go to the movies, but you can have a blockbuster card. That one I never understood. I don't understand how that's the case. Now, let me ask you a question, church. Do you think there are movies that Christians shouldn't participate in? Absolutely. Absolutely. This world is full of all kinds of filth. And there ought to be a discernment that we live by and say, hey, I don't want to walk in that. But I had a thou shalt not go to the movies. And I lived in condemnation as a young married man, my wife and I. We went to the movies. And we saw the Grinch. And I left that theater feeling like, oh my goodness. What have I done? I can't believe we did that. I should be a better leader in my home than that. 
I have led my wife down a slippery slope, and now we've gone to the movies. And I was feeling guilty. Now, that was a condemnation that was not placed by Scripture on me. It was placed by man's opinion. But here's the danger of what we mistake, is that we go ahead and violate our conscience because we don't think what man is saying is right, but we never root what we believe in the Scripture. And so what we do is we find some other man that agrees with us, and we get people around to confirm, oh, it's okay to go to the movies. Don't worry about it, man. No big deal. But you haven't developed any spiritual discernment or any biblical knowledge in doing that. You've just traded one man's opinion for another man's opinion. And you leave yourself unmoored from truth. And what we must do is get in the word of God and lay out the principles of the word of God of why can I throw that off. And and I believe, here's what's happening, I believe a lot of Christians are still, they're not living under the rule of condemnation, but they still think God thinks that way. And they're living with condemnation over their head that they feel like, if if I really study the Bible, I'm going to find out I should never go to the movies. And they live with a condemnation and a low-grade guilt all the time. Let me say this. There is freedom in Christ. Open the pages of Scripture. And I promise you this. Wherever you come down, there's a greater freedom of knowing it is God that is asking it of you than it is man that is asking it of you. There's a freedom there of knowing what the Scripture says. And so we're, we're, we're in danger of doing that. So these asceticisms, what do they do? What is this whole purpose? They are judging. They are separating people away. They're saying, you're not a part. You're not included. You're on the outside. Well, what is the call of the gospel? The call of the gospel is not to separate. The call of the gospel is to bring people in. Because see, every rule inside scripture is about a relationship, not just about a rule. It's about the relationship that we're into. And when God calls us into the relationship, we're walking with him and he's exposing what is dangerous to us. All of our boundaries should be focused on preserving the eternal, not bogged down in the temporal. They start with Christ and are aimed at the heart, not just the hand. See, the gospel is not behavioral modification. It's heart transformation. Too many times, the violation of these laws that we put on ourselves are avoided while the real issues of the heart are ignored. So don't let them judge and don't be a judge on those who don't observe the days you do. Don't eat it. And so asceticism comes in. And asceticism said it's the dial of the flesh that is going to solve the problem. Now here's the next one, the worship of angels. What is this idea? In this text, they were actually worshiping angels. They were actually praying to angels, and, and uh, they, had, they had ceremonies where they were seeking encounters with angels. Uh, somehow or another, these intermediaries between them and God were going to give them elite access. And what was the reasoning? Well, here's the reasoning. It would be extremely proud of you, knowing what a wicked sinner you are, to think that you can have access to God. Now, doesn't that ring true to you? You know what a sinner you are, and you're telling me a holy God wants to talk to you? Why would God want to talk to you? Why would God want to talk to me? And the condemnation of that was on there. So they said, what you need then is you need an intermediary, a derivative of God, to come down to where you are and several emendations of God. And finally, the angels, you can worship the angels, and the angels will kind of pass it up the chain to God. You say, well, okay, well, maybe that's the case. But see, the word angel literally means a messenger. 
this messenger that they are worshiping. And I think we could even change it in our culture today and say we have many intermediaries that are coming between us and God saying that we cannot be complete without them. We, we would say that, many would say that saints are necessary for us to be complete or that you go through a priest or a pastor or parents or a celebrity pastor. They have to know God more. They're on the internet. It, it's, they got to be more holy. And so they have greater access. And here's the reality is those things are never the intermediary. When I open the Bible, what do I find out? Is that I don't need an angel. I don't need a pastor. But there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And there is freedom that takes me directly to the God of the universe. Not because, because it makes sense. I am a sinner. I am wicked. And why would God want to spend any time with me? And that's the miracle of grace is that through Jesus, he invites me into his presence. And it is only through Jesus that we have access. I don't need a pastor to give me access. And make no mistake this morning, I am thankful for godly pastors. It is an office that God has given to the church to shepherd. I think back of my dad and for the first uh, 12 years that I remember at two years of age, my dad became my pastor. And he was my pastor until I was 14. And all of those years, I can't count how many times on a Sunday morning I would stand and hear my dad preach Jesus Christ crucified, buried, risen, and coming again. And the tears would run down his face, and I knew that he loved Jesus, and he was pointing me to Jesus. I think of Farrell Dowdy, my pastor, when I was in high school. And Brother Farrell Dowdy never wrote a book, never published a blog, never started a conference but he stood up week in and week out and he stood in front of the word of God and preached the word of God to the people of God and loved them where they were. And he walked with a group of teenage boys, uh, four of which, uh, sorry, five, six, seven of which are in gospel ministry right now. And he just walked faithfully with those men. And thank God for his influence, thank God for them. But here's the thing, Pharaoh Dowdy didn't give me access to God. Steve Montgomery didn't give me access to God. What were they? They were road signs pointing me. They were just road signs. And that's what you want to be, faithfully just being a road sign, pointing people to Jesus. Moms and dads, we don't give our children access. We're road signs pointing them to Jesus. It is only through Jesus that we have access. It is not through an angel. It is not through an intermediary. It is not through a priest. It is not through saints that we have access. It is through Christ and Christ alone. And he said, don't let anybody steal you of the access you have. Don't let them take it from you. God can use these means, but it is not man worship that brings us there. Here, here's the thing you need to remember and get it all the way through. No man has more access than another man. It is only through Christ that we all have access. We come to him alone. And then finally, visions. This one may be a little touchy. These people were going on in details about visions. What are these visions? And, and they, they were insisting again on them. And here, here is the key, insisting on them. Insisting on these is a vision because without which you are not complete. Without which you don't have full access. What were these advanced revelations from God or for some other spiritual being that gave more information that had not yet been given to make us complete? They were saying you must have these visions to be complete. Let me say this, you do not need an experience to be complete. Get that straight in your mind. It is not an experience that completes me. It is Christ that completes me. Now, I'm thankful for the times I've been in a worship service, and it just 
man. Pastor Caleb would say it got on, amen? He was on today, man. It's exciting to be in church, to be around the people of God. I've been in my prayer closet before, and just the tears began to flow, and there was an awareness of God's presence. But here's the thing. God never left me. He's always been there. If we're not careful, we can add experience in front of the cross and say, if you don't have this experience, you don't have the full access. You see, I'm not working to Christ. I'm working from Christ. It is in Christ that I am complete and I'm walking. I've said it before. We're not working for acceptance. We're working from acceptance. I have been accepted. I have been made complete. I don't need another vision. I don't need another experience to be complete in Christ. Now, I think there is a danger for even scriptural things to get in the way of us, and I think that is in the sign gifts. God clearly gave sign gifts to the church. He gave them to confirm his word to the church and the propagation of the gospel. And I know there are many people, even people I love dearly, that would disagree with me on the continuation or the ceasing of those gifts. And here's the issue this morning. I'm not rather, to, this morning is not to lay out whether we're going to talk about ceasing or not. What God has done, God can do. God is not limited. But God has a normal means by which he communicates, and he communicates in the normal means today by the preaching and teaching of the word. Now, here's the thing we can do. We can disagree on whether sign gifts continue or not continue. We can have a discussion about that and still be brothers and sisters in Christ, still preach the gospel together. That's all good and fine. But here's what we can't do. We can't say that these gifts are necessary for salvation or to have the fullness of the Spirit. Because there is no evidence in Scripture that any sign gift was ever the standard by which somebody is filled with the Spirit. It was evidence that someone was filled with the Spirit in a couple of places. But Paul makes it very clear in Ephesians when he writes, he said, the day you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And here's the thing, you got all of the Holy Spirit you will ever get the day you accepted Christ as your Savior. The journey now is for him to get more of you. And he begins to conform us to his image. And so here's the thing. When we hold to these things, we understand that God has used them in the past. God can heal today like he ever has. But if you say, well, do all have the gift of healing? Well, what does Paul say? He implies no. Do all have the gift of tongues? No. And the implication is firm that they are not what makes me complete. And too often we are coming in and saying it is your spiritual experience. Now, not to say that I've been without this my whole life. I did not grow up in a church that would ever have taught the sign gifts. But in some derivative way, we did call for an extra biblical experience. And it was generally some kind of emotional response to a song service or to a preaching service. And they would intend for you to jump up and shout, to run laps around the auditorium. I'm not joking. And you would be shamed in, if for not doing so. And you're not complete if you don't. And there was a very heavy legalistic response to that at times. And I remember sitting there with this tearing in my soul of like, I got to have this experience or I'm not complete. And I really want to be complete. So how do I work up this experience? That's a dangerous place. Here's the thing. We don't start from experience to Christ. We start with Christ and he walks with us daily. And so these sign gifts come and you say, Professor, how do you know we don't need more information? How do you know that what we have is enough? 2 Peter 1 and 16 says, he said, we have a more sure word of prophecy. 
What is he referring to? He's referring to the fact that they stood on the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw the Lord of creation transfigured with the other prophets there before him. And he said, we witnessed this with our own eyes. He said, but what you're holding in your hand today, the scripture is a more sure word of prophecy. And it's not a private interpretation. And here's the thing you better know. You may say, well, God told me something. Let me make something very clear. If God told you something that disagrees with this book right here, he didn't tell it to you. The word of God must be what we stand upon. Now, I challenge us this morning that we would root ourselves in the completeness of who Christ is. You say, well, pastor, wasn't he just talking about the Old Testament books in that text? Not the New Testament. And yet, when we go to the end of that that book in chapter number 3 and in verse number 16, he says, hey, Paul's epistles, they're hard to be understood. And he said, man, they're a wrestling. And he said, and many would twist them as they do the other scriptures. And Peter is affirming that Paul's writings were scripture as well. And it's confirmed that the New Testament, the canon of scripture we hold in our hand, is the word of God. And let me say this word on this and we'll be done. I need to know more. I need to know him more. But I don't need more than him. That's the key. I want to know him. I want to walk in his presence. And he said, what were they doing? They were not holding fast to the head. The head is Christ. The body is the means of the growth of the church. We grow from Christ, not to Christ. We are joined in Christ. And maturity flows through the normal means of grace. It is scripture. It is prayer. It is community inside the local church. These are the means by which God ministers grace to his people and edifies his church and builds them up. If we walk away from the head, we walk away from Christ. Hold fast to Christ. Holding fast to him keeps me from drifting into false doctrine, into isolation, into judgment, or disqualifying. You see, we cannot set aside these doctrines of Scripture and say, these are the things. Christ is sufficient. And say, well, I know Christ is sufficient, but I need my experience. I know Christ is experienced, but I need another intermediary. I know Christ is uh, is sufficient, but I, I need my asceticism. No, you don't need your asceticism. You don't need your angels. You don't need your visions. Christ is enough. He is sufficient. And we stand upon him and him alone. You see, there is a great desire in the heart of people to be accepted. And it's a dangerous desire. And I'll be honest with you, it's not a desire that is foreign to me. When a pastor stands on a Sunday morning to say what somebody might disagree with, pulls at your heart a little bit. Because I want to be accepted. But in that desire to be accepted is exactly what the cult leaders were doing is they were exercising their influence on the group to pull them into the group. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, the great permanent mainspring of human action is a desire to be in the inner circle. All passions, uh, the passion of the inner ring of man's most skillful is uh, is the idea of taking men who are not very bad and making them do very bad things. What is he driving at? He's talking about peer pressure, pulling people down a path they shouldn't go down. And that reverse goes on another reverse of saying, hey, if you really want to be a part of the spiritual group, here's what you got to do. And they were exerting this pressure upon people and bringing them in. Let me take that judgment off of you this morning and say, all you need is Christ crucified, buried, risen, and coming again. Now, the Lord may lead you to self-discipline in an area, and that's wonderful. If you choose not to, to, to do Christmas, 
wait till next year and after you bought my gift, please, all right? Uh, that's fine. You can do that. You can walk away from those things. But here's the thing. Don't sit in judgment of others and don't let people put that over your head. Asceticism is not the answer, but Christ will lead us to discipline. Angels are not the answer. Christ is our intermediary. Visions are not the answer. We're complete in Christ, and we have his revealed word in front of us. We do not need to seek another experience. We need to seek him in the pages of the book. Let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its sufficiency. Lord, I pray, Father, that you would help us to avoid being puffed up by our sensuous minds and ever entering into an area of legalistic behavior or judgment disqualifying of people. Father, may we walk with a heart that is open to you, yielded to your word, obedient to what we see in it. Holy Spirit of God, I pray that what has been said today would be received by your people. In the precious name of Jesus, we ask all these things. Let's stand to our feet if we could this morning.